Welcome to Psalm Springs, a podcast dedicated to an open and hopefully inspirational discussion of the biblical book of Psalms. We come to you each week with different aspects and different views of the ancient text and how those texts might inform our lives today. Welcome everyone to another episode of Psalm Springs, a podcast devoted to exploring meaning and tradition and newness and spirituality and all sorts of things in the ancient book of Psalms. And here we are in this very strange time. A month has gone by where many of us have been isolated. And uh, while we might get out to the street to take a walk or to the supermarket or to the doctor, we're pretty much uh, used to by now, we're used to seeing our friends and our family on the screen of a telephone or a computer or to listen to them not necessarily seeing them. And uh, ironically, I think this is bringing so many of us closer together. This is a time in which we have a lot less to do that distracts us. And so we have more time for growing ourselves spiritually, developing ourselves intellectually, pursuing our interests. We've got time to follow those extra links and keep clicking away whatever might interest us. And it really doesn't matter because we've got more time to get things done, the things that we'd like to do each day. I've chosen for this week Psalm 117. It's the shortest of all the Psalms. It's only two verses. And um, I think it's appropriate for this particular week. Uh, We're right after the celebration of Holy Week and Easter for our Christian friends. We are in the midst of the Passover, Pesach celebration, the Jewish communities around the world. Soon, uh, on the 23rd of, of April, Ramadan, the month of Ramadan, will begin for our Muslim brothers and sisters. Uh, This week is the Theravada New Year for many of the Buddhists around the world, and even the Hindus and the Sikhs have a uh, a holiday, uh, Wezaki, which I'm not too sure what it's about, but I did want to try to cover all of our bases. And there may be other traditions out there. Please feel free to send me an email and let me know. We'd like to be as inclusive as possible, even though the book of Psalms um, reach out in a natural, organic way to to Jews and Christians because it's part of Holy Scripture. Although I will uh, later on today share with you something from a new Zen-like tradition, uh, but that's for later. So why don't we begin, and I will read from the translation that I use myself, a translation modified for... Uh, use in in liturgy as well, in our Jewish liturgy. Psalm 117. In Hebrew first, Hallelu et Adonai kol goyim, Shabchu'u kol ha'umim, Ki gavar aleinu chazdo, Ve'emet Adonai le'olam, Hallelujah. Praise the Lord, all you nations. Extol the Lord, all you peoples. For great is the Lord's steadfast love toward us. The faithfulness of the Lord endures forever, Hallelujah. This psalm has a special place in my heart from two periods of my life. The first was when I was in the army, in, uh, in, when I was 20, 21, in the Israeli army in the tank corps in the, in the, in the 70s. And um, we did a lot of maneuvers, and we did some patrolling. And even if it wasn't necessarily in a state of war, I often felt challenged and wanted to say a psalm as part of my understanding of 
reciting psalms as kind of protection, something that was very common and still is today in the Orthodox world. Um, and the only psalm, really, well, it's one of two that I could remember by heart in its entirety, was this one. The other one, for those that are familiar, is the Ashrei Yoshrei Techa, which is made up of two psalms, but that's for another day. And I could remember this and would kind of chant it to myself a few times over and over as we began leaving uh, our camp, our army camp, and going into the, um, the various trails, first in the Sinai Desert and then afterwards in the Judean Desert, where I was stationed both during different periods of my service. And I would, I would sing it to myself in, in kind of a self-convincing way that there's a lot to be happy for, even though right now I'm not terribly happy. There was sand everywhere. There was heat most of the time. If not, it was freezing cold. It was, uh, it was very little sleep during those, those years of serving in the army. There was um, a, 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 a constant state of discipline of making sure you didn't do anything wrong, of living with the same people very, very close, very close quarters for a very long time. And we didn't always often get a lot of time off. So that's one part in my own life where this psalm, it helped me go to another place. It helped me go to a place of gratitude. And I'm not sure when I was 20, 19, 20 years old when I was doing this, I could really explain to you, other than the fact that I remembered the words to these two, these two verses. And of course, it's part of the Hallel, uh, the, the section of Psalms, this book, uh, uh, which Father Andrew and I spoke of last week, uh, the psalm that comes after this, in which are chanted in synagogues and in private prayer, as uh, in homes, uh, on all of the Jewish festivals, as well as uh, the new moon, Rosh Chodesh. And so uh, it's a familiar psalm. But then came 2001. It was a very, very difficult summer for me. I had to have some operation. I had some medical issues. There was many years of drought in Israel. There were many years of the second Indifada. Uh, lots of violence, buses blowing up. It was just a really, really difficult time in my family, myself, in our own lives. I wasn't feeling very good about a lot of things. And suddenly I get a letter from Hebrew University saying that if I don't turn in the first chapter of my dissertation, my doctoral dissertation, which I was working on by, I forgot it was October 1st, October 31st, then I'm out of the program. And I get that great pit in my stomach. How am I going to do this? I'm so busy with what I'm doing. I've got so many things on my plate. I need to get away. So I asked my wife, Sasha, can I get away to work on my PhD? And she said, please, please go. You're, you're so difficult. It's difficult with you right now. And in chatting with my very good friend and uh, study partner, Chavruta, Rabbi Levi, Levi Wyman-Kelman, he said, you should go to this place in, uh, in Burgundy, France, called Teze. I'd never heard of it, of course. I'd lived in Israel for all my adult life and wasn't involved in interfaith work at all. I didn't know anything about Christianity, let alone what was happening now uh, in our day. And uh, he helped me arrange uh, communication and then ended up spending a week there, uh, almost the last week of August in 2001. And there is one of their chants that caught my ear that I couldn't let it go. I just couldn't let it go. It was, Laudate omnis gentes, 
Laudate Dominum, Laudate Omnis Gentes, Laudate Dominum, Laudate Omnis Gentes, Laudate Dominum, Laudate Omnis Gentes, Laudate Dominum. I was enchanted, first of all, the simplicity of the music, like all of their chants. Very simple music, very inspiring music, music that even without the words has the ability to reach deep down inside of one's heart, one's soul, and evoke emotion. And in looking at the translation of this, of course, I didn't really know any Latin other than what I knew from Greek and how words went from Greek to Latin to English, but I, I saw that I, I know these words, laudate, praise, omnis, all, gentes, all nations. And I realized that in my mind at the time, it felt almost miraculously that I could use the Hebrew words to this psalm with the same melody. Hallelujah, Adonai, kol goyim, shabchuhu, kol haumim, ki gavar aleinu, chasto, ve'emet Adonai le'olam, hallelujah. That felt like a sign to me. And that was in 2001. And with the exception of maybe one year, maybe two years in the last almost 20 years since then, I have had the great fortune uh, to be able to visit the Brothers of Teze every year, sometimes for just three days, sometimes for a week, 10 days. I've been able to be there with one of our daughters. I've been able to be there with my wife, Sasha. I've been able to be there with students from Jerusalem and from other parts of Europe. I've been able to be there with rabbinic colleagues from the United States, each time seeing it in a different prism, in a different light. I have utmost respect for these men who have devoted themselves to sacred community. They're a group of Monks, we would call them, yet they're not wearing habits during the day. They only wear their habits during prayer. Otherwise, they dress very simply, very similar to how I've dressed most of my life with khaki pants and button-down shirts. They are celibate, and they do take, make vows to the community itself. They don't have their own possessions. But they're not Catholics. They're, some of them are Catholic. It is an ecumenical monastery. It was started by Brother Roger at the end, towards the end of World War II. He was a Swiss theologian who wanted to set up a community near Cluny, near what was once before the French Revolution, the center of monasticism, and not such a positive center of monasticism with lots of corruption. And he found a place just a few kilometers up the road from Cluny. And a number of brothers joined him. And by the time I got there in 2001, I think there were about 100 brothers, most of them in Burgundy, in the, at, at the community, and others around the world, in Africa and Asia, the United States, doing good work, 
But the most amazing part is the fact that they have opened up their their home, their doors of their village, with dormitories and places to camp out for thousands upon thousands of young people, mostly young people, young Christians from Europe and other places in the world, um, most of the year. In the summer, there could be up to 6,000 people, perhaps even more. I think it's like 6,000 young people. The church uh, has expandable walls. And it's the most beautiful prayer in the world. I've had some of my best prayer experiences there at Teze. And their music and their style and their theology has informed much of the music and the style and the theology of my own prayer in the communities there I've been especially now in Orhamid Bar. But let's take a look at this psalm a little bit and delve into the different layers, the history of interpretation. The first interpretation that I found of this particular psalm actually comes, speaking of interfaith dialogue and my my relationship, ongoing relationship with the brothers of Teze and other Christian communities. The first bit of commentary, of Midrash, we'll call it, that I found is from Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 15, verses 7 to 11, in which Paul says, Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth to confirm the promises made to the patriarchs, so that the Gentiles may glorify God for his mercy as it is written, skipping a little bit, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and sing praises to him, all you peoples. So Paul has has captured this psalm, taking out of its context in the Hebrew scriptural book of Psalms and put it in his own um, homily, if you will, which is about coming together for the common good. If we can look at it like that right now, I know that uh, in the years that I was in that tank, in the Judean desert, if anybody had told me that I would be um, uh, quoting New Testament, uh, praying with monks, uh, in ongoing teaching the book of gospel, uh, I would not have believed it. I was in a very different time, very different place in my life, place not just time-wise, but also locale, living in Israel all those years. But, um, but my, my, the joy that I have of learning things from other faith traditions, in this case Christianity, is the ability to, to catch what I think is the kernel, that glowing ember of the text, which for me is not about Christ. I understand for others it would be about Christ, but for me it's about coming together for the common good and using this psalm as a, as a, as a prayer, as a, a way to induce that coming together amongst people, if we take the line seriously. If we praise, all of us praise together, all of us extol God in, uh, amongst all the peoples because of God's ongoing steadfast love, God's chesed, and God's faithfulness in making sure that we will be all right, and we actually say together, Hallelujah, together, we praise God, right? exerting that breath with Yah. We realize that we're breathing the same air together. We realize that we share that, that one common future of humanity. 
Now, that wasn't always the case. That wasn't always the case. And naturally, in the history of Jewish interpretation, this psalm was seen in a very, very Jewish way. And so Rashi, Rabbi Shlomo Yitzchaki, lived in Troyes in France in the 11th century. So he kind of puts it in the framework of the past, right? The past. He says, past and the present. He says, on the verse, Ki Gavar Aleinu Chazdo, because the, how great the Lord's steadfast love towards us is, he says, well, that is us. That indeed is us. We have a lot to be thankful for. But when it says the faithfulness of the Lord of the Lord endures forever, that Rashi says that's towards our ancestors. That that the meaning is of in the past, in the past. And so we take for example this holiday of Passover of Pesach. Many of us sat by the seder table the other night. We ate matzah, this ancient bread, the simplest, the humblest of bread. We munched on on either bitter lettuce or horseradish and, and relived that bitterness and ate that matzah as part of the story we internalized through eating the symbols we internalized the message not because that something magical will happen to us not because that's our ticket into heaven but because we too in every generation are to feel that we have been enslaved and we have been released and we are to feel that when we do feel enslaved, by whatever it is that enslaves us, we can and we will be released. But we also understand that we're the ones that need to do much, if not most, if not all the work in that release for ourselves and for others. I would like to think that in the same way our Muslim brothers and sisters, who will soon be commemorating the giving of the Quran during the month of Ramadan coming up, a month of not only thinking about the past of their holy scripture and how God gave that scripture to Muhammad, the prophet, but also improving themselves. The fasting, the praying, the bit of seriousness, and yet a bit of, of celebration in the evening for iftar, it's part of improving oneself. It's not just about the history. It's about now and then, then and now, back and forth, not being stuck in the past and not being totally consumed by the present, but using the past and the present to form a better future. And the same thing in the Christian community. If Easter of Holy Week uh, commemorates the days leading up to Jesus being crucified and then returning to life in the resurrection from that Last Supper, which may have very well been a Seder evening. And it doesn't matter right now if those I know that historians would say, well, it wasn't, it was, it wasn't. It doesn't matter because in so many centuries of Christian thought, it certainly was thought to be a Seder. And, um, and, and thinking of those days and then Jesus being put to death, and then on Friday and rising on uh, on Sunday Sunday morning, and and all all that came with that, and all all that that has influenced around the world. That's a lot about the past, but I would like to think that our Christian friends and brothers and sisters are also thinking about their own resurrection, their own coming back to life, their time of renewal. 
Of course, I'm presenting the psalm in a rather uh, multicultural, multi-religious way. But that wasn't always the case, of course. And ancient text has always been used to prove one's specialness, one's uniqueness, whether it was the Jewish people, the chosen people concept, the Israelites and then the Jews, or whether it is in Christianity or in Islam, there's always a, an attempt to try to say, well, we, we're actually the ones who know the truth. And it's good to take a look, I think, at those commentaries because they help us understand better how not to step into that trap today. So the first is an early Christian commentary, one of the church fathers, Augustine, who was the Bishop of Hippo, which is now today Algeria, North Africa, and has a rather long commentary on the Psalms. And I'm just going to read you just a little bit from two lines from the very end of our psalm. And on the words, And the truth of the Lord endures forever, Augustine says, Whether in those things which God promised to the righteous, or in those which God has threatened to the ungodly. In other words, kind of using, weaponizing this psalm. Don't think it's all about the good stuff. Now there's us giving praise and us giving thanks. That's all of us nations. Well, we're the good guys. But they're the bad guys. And we, and we feel we want to give thanks and praise for the wonderful uh, rewards that we have gotten in this world, in the world to come, for those that believe. But there's the others, the not-so-good guys, who they're getting there, they're getting punished. And Augustine, of course, was not, was not alone in this, and I'm sure that's what many uh, preachers uh, in the Christian tradition uh, spoke about on Sundays over the years, especially when this psalm, and I'm sure there's a time when this psalm is part of the liturgy. I, I know it is uh, in, in different traditions, but my friend Father Andrew or my other friends, Pastor Jane, Pastor Rev Kev, they're, they're not here to help me out right now with the, with the liturgy, with the Christian liturgy, but... Um, but from our own tradition, from our own Jewish tradition, there's a comment from Radak, that's the uh, acronym for Rabbi David Kimchi, who lived in Provence in the 12th and 13th century in Narbonne. And um, I'm going to read it to you because he has a few things there and then we'll, we'll kind of unpack it at the end. Um, but I'm telling you right now, he's assuming, he assumes the same thing that Augustine said explicitly beforehand. The psalm, this psalm of only two verses is for the Messianic times, says Rabbi David Kimchi. Right? This is not for now, this is what we're going to say in the future. The fact that it contains only two verses hints that at the time, at that time, all nations will be on one of two sides. And you're thinking to yourself, oh, the side of the good guys, the side of the bad guys. Uh-uh. Right? The bad guys have already been, this Messianic times, the bad guys have already been destroyed. They're not even the picture. So on one side, the Israelites will be alone, off to one side, with their Torah, and all the other nations will be on the other side with their seven commandments. And uh, Radak is referring here to a, a, a Talmudic tradition about the Noachide, Sheva Mitzvot B'nei Noach, the Noachide um, commandments. Um, there's actually a, a, a website, I looked it up once, I think the, uh, Chabad Lubavitch is behind it, for in order to to get the non-Jews to do the seven commandments, which according to the Talmud were commanded to all peoples of the earth. Uh, hence, they're called the Noahide from Noah uh, uh, of the flood. After the flood, they're commanded. And those seven things, according to the Talmudic, Talmudic tradition, 
are um, that even non-Jews are prohibited to take part in idolatry or to murder or steal or commit adultery or blasphemy or to do any kind of cruelty to animals. And finally, they're required to set up a judicial system. These are the seven things that the rabbis of the Talmud decided for the non-Jews, this is what you need to do in order to bring about the Messiah, right? This is, and, that, and hence, I think the website sponsored by Chabad is in order to help. That's one of their, that is their main goal. Genus, how do we bring about messianic times in the, in the Orthodox or the Chabad understanding of, of Melech HaMashiach, of the messianic king? But back to Rabbi David Kimchi, he, it's very, very simple. It, you know, the, the, we're going to break down into two parts. There's us and them, but instead of the us and them being us are good, them are being bad, well, the us and them are different kinds of good. Everybody has a different, a different uh, formula to follow. And then finally, he ends his commentary um, by saying, and everyone will praise the Lord since at that time all will be thankful as it is written, so that they will all invoke the name, uh, the Lord by name and serve the Lord with one accord. From the book of Zephaniah, Zephaniah, uh, chapter 3, verse 9. So we've been kind of um, in different places. We've traveled around the world a little bit, from North Africa to France, from uh, the deserts, the wilderness of Israel in ancient times to the 1970s, uh, in my own experience in the army, to my experiences in Taizé, back to France again, and um, and then to the practice. The practice for me is that this psalm is is it's it's almost a a regular feature in Kabbalat Shabbat. It has been in my own uh, prayer practice. Oh, basically since 2001 when I began visiting Taizé. And, um, and as time come, goes on, I'll, hopefully I will share with you some of the other melodies that I was able to adapt from the music of Teze to, uh, to Hebrew for, uh, to, to be used, and many of them from the Book of Psalms. Uh, but to end, I'd like to end with something from the almost Buddhist tradition. I say almost because there's a lovely book, small book that was put out by Norman Fisher, uh, called Opening to You. It's from 2001-2002, I believe. Um, and it's called it's Zen-inspired translations of the Psalms. And so it's not all the Psalms, but our Psalm uh, 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 appears here. And um, it's a wonderful little book, and he's got a lovely story of how he spent time at, at Thomas Merton's Trappist Monastery and how he came to understand certain things in his own Jewish background, but Zen practice. In any case, he came up with this, and I'd like to end with this particular uh, psalm. And before that, I want to wish everyone um, lots of health and lots of hope in this difficult time. And the way that I find is best to get through this is to express our gratitude to each other over the different forms of media we have, but also to express our gratitude to God and to ourselves, um, that we were keeping it, not only keeping it together, but we're able to grow in unexpected ways. And I hope this podcast will help you grow in that way, or at least start down a particular path, an idea of multi-religious, multicultural um, unity, uh, not uniformity, but unity. There's a lot we have in common, and giving thanks is one of those things. 
I would also like to ask all of our folks listening in Palm Springs that if you need anything, please, please be in touch with me or one of the or Hamid Bar or the Chavara members, and we will get that to you, whatever you need. But for now, a deep breath as we read, as I read from uh, Norman Fisher's translation. Nations give praise. People give praise. For strong is your steadfast love in us, and your truth is a durable truth, without end. Praise that. Psalm Springs is a production of Or Hamid Bar, Light of the Desert, an organization dedicated to intellectual, spiritual, and social engagement with the Jewish tradition. We're based in Palm Springs, California, We'd like to give thanks to Madalena Garza for editing and everything else tech-like in this production. Please check us out at www.orhamidbar.org for more information. And if you'd like to sponsor a Psalm Springs episode, you can do so by going to our website. If you like what you've heard, please express it on iTunes, Apple, or Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.